Hello and welcome to Lodcast. Last episode, we covered the topic of remote working, and we were fortunate to speak with Heidi Gardner. That episode became our most downloaded episode almost immediately, so we knew we had to get Heidi back. In this episode, we're delighted to speak with Heidi again about smart collaboration, a term she coined to talk about how we need highly specialised experts to come together to tackle more complicated issues than any of them could do on their own. We take a deeper dive into her world-leading research on how this impacts legal professionals, and more recently her research and analysis on what this means for in-house legal teams. It's a fascinating and insightful conversation, and I particularly like how Heidi has taken a potentially misperceived soft skill of collaboration and brought indisputable evidence and rigor to how it brings tangible bottom-line impact. Heidi also then explains how in-house teams might better collaborate. So without further ado, here's Heidi. Good morning, Heidi. Uh, can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, who you are and, and what you do? Well, I'm Heidi Gardner. I'm a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School's Center on the Legal Profession, which I consider to be my research home at Harvard University. And I am also the faculty chair of some of our executive programs at Harvard Law School. And uh, having been a professor at Harvard Business School previously, I continue to teach executive programs there and at Harvard's Kennedy School and School of Public Health and so forth. And can you give our listeners um, a quick price, if that's possible, on the topic of smart collaboration? Absolutely. Smart collaboration is the term that I've coined to talk about how we need highly specialized experts to come together and tackle more complicated or sophisticated issues than any of them could do on their own. And for in-house lawyers, for example, that means that they need to come together not just with other kinds of legal specialists within the legal team, but essentially they need to be collaborating across a range of what we call vectors. Those mean, you know, if you remember your physics intro class, a vector is a line with both direction and magnitude. And so when we talk about a vector of collaboration for in-house lawyers, the first vector is within the legal team. The second vector is between the legal team and the business executives, whether that's frontline leaders or the whole way up to the board. The third vector is collaboration between the in-house legal team and other corporate functions. And then the last vector we talk about, it's a bit of a cheat, but we talk about the last vector as all of the actors and bodies that are outside the corporation. And that ranges from outside law firms to regulators and you name it. So smart collaboration is the bringing together of those different perspectives and bases of expertise and knowledge in order to tackle complicated problems. That's great. So just to clarify, is the smart nature of the collaboration you're talking about, does that refer to the multidisciplinary nature of it or is that slightly different to what you're talking about? The reason, Mark, that we felt compelled to qualify collaboration and call it smart collaboration is because the term collaboration gets bandied about and means lots of different things to different people. So we wanted to distinguish smart collaboration from terms like collegiality. You know, it's it's smart collaboration is not the same as a big group hug. Smart collaboration <laughs> is, you know, really intentional, deliberate use of a team because those people bring different perspectives together. 
So smart collaboration in the legal realm could be bringing together different legal domains. It could be the uh, anti-corruption lawyer with the uh, transaction lawyer with the local expert in a particular jurisdiction, or it could be collaboration between the lawyer and the HR executive and somebody working in a manufacturing plant. So it's multidisciplinary, it's multi-domain, but most of all, the smart and smart collaboration means that it's intentional and it's used in ways that allow people to do more and different, uh, to derive more and different solutions than they could do if they were trapped in their own silo. So, so Heidi, I wonder if you could explain to our listeners, uh, without going too into the weeds, but a little bit around the research methodology around your smart collaboration work. I'd be delighted and cut me off if I if I get too far into the weeds. But we take what's called a, a multi-method approach to this problem. And first, we wanted to bust the myth that collaboration is a quote-unquote soft topic. And we wanted to bring hard data and numbers and science and math and economics to the study of collaboration. And so initially we collected enormous data sets. I mean, I literally have millions of data records from across a whole range of organizations, many, many, many law firms, now many in-house legal departments, other kinds of professional firms, healthcare organizations, financial institutions, you name it. And we have collected lots of data that reflects how people are actually working together. So in the law firm context, that's oftentimes timesheet records. Those are great records for how people have worked together on what kinds of projects, with whom, who generated the piece of work, who was leading it, who brought other people in at which points in time. And all of those data traces allow us an objective understanding of who's worked with whom for how long and on what types of work. And then we married those kinds of databases, you know, utilization records, timesheet records, and so forth, with other kinds of data to allow us to see outcomes of collaboration. So in my first book on smart collaboration, how professionals and their firms succeed by breaking down silos, we looked at all of those kinds of data records and we analyzed collaboration patterns to see results. And those were results on things like firm or practice group revenues and profits, on retention of key staff, on client loyalty, all sorts of outcomes of collaboration patterns. And the reason it was so key to use empirical data methods is that our econometric models and so forth allow us to statistically tease out patterns that are very hard for the human mind to detect. And so first we took this empirical approach with lots of different kinds of data records and, 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 um, and, and analyses. And then we used what I've now understood to be a design thinking approach. At the time, it was just common sense and pragmatics. We would take our early <laughs> findings and we'd say, ah, oh, here's a, you know, here's a regression analysis. It looks as if collaboration allows an individual to be far more productive in these certain ways. And then I'd go into the Harvard classroom where we had you know, 50 or 100 practicing lawyers and say, have you seen this kind of pattern? How would you explain it? Why would this turn up? And we use that to test our ideas and to collect lots of qualitative evidence and anecdotes about why those patterns emerge and how they play out. And of course, 
lawyers being lawyers, they were incredibly skeptical in a healthy way for me. They'd say, well, maybe it means X or maybe it means Y, or maybe you're picking up something else that you're not actually measuring. And then I'd say, aha, well, we can measure that. And that's how we built up our whole array of control variables for these econometric models. We could we could test for, well, maybe it's just that kind of practice group, or you know, maybe the insolvency practice is counter-cyclical to the economy, so we need to control for the economic cycle, or lots of different things like that. And we built up over time these really robust models so that now we're convinced that collaboration, smart collaboration, like we've talked about, leads to all sorts of quantifiable benefits and we're convinced that those statistical models are pretty robust across time periods, across different kinds of organizations, uh, across all sorts of individual characteristics like gender and age and so forth. And that was the first approach we took, which was empirical. Then it was testing the data lots and lots with real people who are doing this, not you know an ivory tower approach. And then we collected surveys now from many, many thousands of practicing lawyers around the world and ask them the the obvious question, which is, if collaboration is so great, if smart collaboration leads to these quantifiable benefits in terms of financial benefits and individual professional benefits, why is it that it's still so hard to do? And we ask open-ended questions to a lot of these survey respondents, and they helped us understand through their free text responses what it what stands in the way of collaboration in their organizations. You know, whether it's a law firm or an in-house legal department, or whether they're practicing in different you know kinds of uh, jurisdictions or sizes of firms. We now have a really strong picture of the obstacles to smart collaboration across a range of organizations. So I'll stop there, but I know that's the basic approach we took, which was qualitative and quantitative and a really um, global approach to understanding why it matters and how to get there. So what I love about that is the obviously the incredible rigor and bringing that to bear on what may be previously seen or, or perceived as a fairly soft topic or soft skill, I guess it's a, a juxtaposition, a false juxtaposition that many people think collaboration is just this thing that some people do. Uh, it's a bit wishy-washy. And then you're actually bringing in things like timesheets, revenues per practice groups. I mean, that must be quite a, it must have been quite satisfying when you got to the end of that process to, to be able to bring such hard evidence behind um, what, many perceive as a soft topic. Was that was that satisfying? It was deeply satisfying. And what's great you know, as a researcher is to be able to engage in these very robust and slightly geeky processes with all these numbers, but then to be able to build up a picture that's also intensely practical. And I think that iteration between the data sets and the real live lawyers and other kinds of professionals who are wrestling with this allowed us to take what could otherwise be an exercise and make it very, very pragmatic. And that's been deeply, deeply satisfying. And although you know, there's a, a risk that what we come out with seems in the end quite obvious. I mean, one slightly uncharitable lawyer wrote to me and said, basically, you've proven that night follows day. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, there is a risk that I look like Captain Obvious coming out of this. And I'm saying things like, you know, working together on a really 
sophisticated, complicated problem and adding value to clients actually does generate long-term benefits, both strategically and financially. Maybe that's obvious, but here's my challenge back to that lawyer. So why aren't you doing it more? Why aren't you doing it better? Why isn't this the routine default way of tackling a tough client problem rather than operating in a silo until the point when the client demands that you go outside your comfort zone of your own expertise? And so, yes, it's deeply satisfying to be able to bring evidence and numbers to bear on this problem, but uh, it is also really satisfying to be able to help lawyers think through, now that I get it, now that you've convinced me, now that we have some evidence that this works, how is it that you're going to help me in a day-to-day basis become a better collaborator? Thanks so much for explaining the methodology of the research. Why don't we move now a bit into the into the results and the outcomes of the the impact? I'm wondering, as kind of a an opening question, what was the most surprising or unexpected observation that you uncovered in your research? Probably the most surprising outcome of my research was this idea that a quote-unquote soft topic like collaboration could be deeply, rigorously, analytically studied and that the magnitude of the outcome was so great and quantifiable. And so what we have shown, for example, we had a, a, like a mini, mini case study where we found two nearly identical lawyers in our data set. They worked for the same firm. They practiced the same type of law. They were located in the same jurisdiction. They were... Uh, the same age, they had the same amount of experience under their belt. They had both lateraled into this firm from competitors around the same time. So they had the same amount of opportunity to build up their internal network, you know, virtually identical twins from both a professional and demographic Mm -hmm. standpoint. Then we looked at their timesheet records and said, how are they actually spending their time? Because importantly, they also build individually about the same number of hours per year. And when we looked at their timesheet records, we understood that they were spending those hours very, very, very differently. The one we called Twin One, he had about six other partners around the firm that he worked with on a material basis, you know, generated um, client outcomes by working directly with them on matters or deals. When we looked at Twin Two, his, you know, demographically similar counterpart, Twin Two had more than 30 partners around the firm that he was collaborating extensively with. And so we could see that same people in the same firm, critically important, operating under the same remuneration system, this absolute same comp structure and performance metrics, chose to spend their time completely differently. And it didn't relate to the nature of the work they were doing because they were both lawyers in the same practice group doing very similar types of work. This came down to a personal preference. And drawing this back to the first surprise I mentioned, that there are these quantifiable outcomes, when we looked at the outcomes that these two lawyers generated, not individually, because remember, they're billing about the same number of hours, each of them alone. But when we looked at the value of the work they were creating for the firm as a whole. Twin One, who was operating this very small, quite siloed network, was only a quarter 
as productive as his more collaborative partner. And so, you know, to, the way we looked at this, Mark, was to, to take a look um, in this law firm, they formally designated partners as either lead or co-lead partners of a, of a key client. And we were able to see, you know, for clients where twin one or twin two was the lead or the co-lead partner, how much work was being generated for those clients? And, you know, what were the revenues and profits generated by those client teams? And the more collaborative partner was able to harness these various types of experts across the firm and pull them together in more seamless ways that the client really valued. And in a single year was able through those teams to generate more than four times the profitability of his less collaborative, identical partner. What an, what an incredible uh, anecdote. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried. Some people might be listening to this and think, ah, well, I'm not extroverted and therefore I'm not going to be a good collaborator. What's your response to that? Collaboration is not a God-granted or DNA-driven characteristic. Absolutely not. Um, So think about it this way. A lot of lawyers are introverts, which means, you know, by all nature, the research that's been done, they also talk less than extroverts. What are they doing when they're not talking? They're listening and they're processing. And when people are listening and processing, it gives them a tremendous opportunity to understand the needs of the person that they're talking to, which helps them uncover opportunities to provide different types of perspectives and to think through what are the real underlying root causes. And if I were to bring somebody in who has a different expertise base than me, how could we team up to really address that root cause in a way that an extrovert might, because they're an external processor, because they talk a lot, because they're, you know, often have a um, high sense of urgency, they might skip over those conversations. They might not listen as deeply. They might not uncover those opportunities. And so introverts can be brilliant collaborators because they bring different skills and tendencies to a partnership. Great. Um, I, I was hoping there was a there was an answer which there's no equivalence between uh, your kind of personal demeanor and your ability to collaborate. So that's <laughs> I'm pleased that that was uh, the response. Uh, yeah, and Mark, you know, we uh, Mark, I've also engaged in a new piece of research, which I think is going to be essential for lawyers as they're thinking through how to become better collaborators, and. The very good news for people is that you don't need to change who you are or what your personality is in order to become a much more effective collaborator. So the research that we're doing right now is using psychometric tests, which are basically, you know, self-assessments, but they're very rigorous, um, scientifically validated ones. And we use these self-assessments to help people get a clearer objective picture of their behavioral tendencies. Are they somebody who is more of a risk seeker or a risk spotter, for example? Mm. And then we're building out a tool that allows people, once they understand where they fall on seven different dimensions that relate to collaboration, they're able to see, ah, I'm more at this end of, of this scale. And here's how I use that tendency to become more effective in collaborating. 
And in other words, I don't have to change what I do. I just have to be more intentional about using that behavior. So a risk seeker oftentimes um, you know, is able to spot lots of opportunities for collaboration and jump in with two feet, which can be helpful in sparking collaboration. But if somebody's a risk spotter, they can be equally effective in a collaborative setting. They can help the team figure out if they've got, say, the right resources in place before they barrel down a path, or they can be the ones to you know, put some structure in place to contain the collaboration and make sure that it's going to meet its objectives. And so you know, what our tool, we're branding it the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. It allows people to take their natural tendencies and accelerate the good outcomes of collaboration by playing on their strengths rather than trying to change who they are. So a lot of the um, research we've been talking about focused focuses on law firms. Um, I think you've done some research on collaboration in in-house teams. Is that correct? Absolutely. I have a new book coming out uh, at the end of April, actually, called Smart Collaboration for In-House Legal Teams. And it focuses specifically on in-house legal teams, both the lawyers and increasingly other kinds of functional experts who are brought into the legal team and how they can become much more effective at collaborating in order to add value to the business. And is this mainly um, North American teams or is the research wider than that? No, absolutely uh, much wider than that. We're studying teams and have studied teams around the world. So we took a very expansive view of in-house legal teams. Mostly we're operating in the for-profit world, um, public companies, privately held companies, those that are uh, backed by uh, private equity firms and VCs. But we also have lessons for in-house legal teams in nonprofits, in government institutions, and so forth. And we have interviewed and researched in-house legal teams on, I think, every inhabited continent and many, many, many countries. <laughs> is, there, is there a legal team in Antarctica that I'm not aware of? Or? I, I don't believe so. So, you know, we, we, um, you know we, we've got a broad base uh, for our research, uh, and, and we're pretty confident that it translates across countries and cultures. <laughs> Very good. So, so diving a bit deeper now, into um, into that smart collaboration because obviously in-house teams quite a different beast to, to private practice they're they're not revenue generators necessarily or maybe we can touch on that they're more cost centers they have different reporting lines it's a very different world how did you have to kind of adapt to to the in-house legal team well, I will be honest and tell you that the idea for this book wasn't my own. It actually came from a lot of emails I had gotten from general counsel and other in-house lawyers who saw my original smart collaboration research. They liked those ideas, but they needed to translate a lot of the how-tos into their own context. And after getting enough of those messages, I realized there's a demand for this and, and conducted the research from scratch, starting with the basis of smart collaboration and why it's important. And then the how-tos were generated through all of this research with legal teams around the world. Now, what we were able to suss out from our research is that in-house lawyers are facing the dilemma of needing to collaborate in many directions all at once, which is incredibly complicated for them. So they need to collaborate not just with people inside the legal team, who increasingly uh, are not just lawyers, but also 
data scientists or legal operations specialists and so forth, and figuring out how to bring those people together most effectively, especially if they're spread out around the world, that's its own challenge. But a bigger challenge, I think, for most in-house lawyers is how do they collaborate most effectively with the business side of the house? You know, whether that's the frontline business operators, the, the plant managers or the sales reps, all the way up to the board. And how are they getting involved early enough in decision making so that they can bring a legal perspective into the mix and add value as a strategic thinker rather than having the business people come to them after you know months of planning and decision making and then asking legal to sign off which puts them in this incredibly awkward position of having to essentially point out flaws or risks or compliance issues after months of work have gone into it it's incredibly frustrating for everyone involved and so figuring out how to collaborate with the business early enough to get their voice heard and bring their expertise into the mix is a critical challenge. And that's how in-house lawyers will move from being seen as a a cost center or a naysayer to really becoming seen as value-adding. And in your research with in-house legal teams, um, would you, uh, I mean, how did you, I don't want to go back into research methodology methodology too much. But were you sitting down with general counsels and interviewing them or was it surveys? How did it happen? So the way we translated the original research to the in-house world was by, uh, again, taking a qualitative and quantitative approach. Our research, um, the book that's coming out, we have surveys from more than 400 legal team members around the world, and we conducted more than 100 in-depth sometimes you know, multi-stage interviews with general counsel around the world and importantly, with the people who use legal services in a business. And so we have chief executives, we have board members, we have um, frontline operators and bringing the, the, the two voices into this conversation was incredibly important. This is not just a, a book based on how lawyers would like to add value. This is a book based on that perspective and the business people and other functional heads and other people outside, you know, representing bodies outside the corporation, for example, regulators, how they would like to see in-house lawyers behaving so that everyone recognizes that a legal perspective is a robust, inherent part of a decision rather than sign off at the end. And it, it seems that there is a sense that getting uh, the legal teams involved earlier has a lot of benefits. But I'm wondering, uh, c- can you explain a little bit around what are some of the other best practices for, for in-house legal teams to, to, to start collaborating in a smart way? Absolutely. So it's one thing for the in-house lawyer to want to get involved early in the decision-making. It's an entirely different question about how they achieve that because they can't simply insert themselves into each decision that's getting made. They have to be welcomed into that decision. And indeed, they have to be invited because the the business executives who are, who are launching a new project need to create space for the legal perspective early on, that the lawyers unlikely even be aware of a lot of the projects that are happening and bubbling up. And so how do they 
gain credibility in the eyes of the business executives such that they're invited in early. And, you know, our book goes into, you know, a whole chapter on um, how to collaborate with the the business executives um, in this way. So how do they earn a seat at the strategy table? How do they stop acting like, quote unquote, just a lawyer and demonstrate their willingness to see different kinds of risk and different thresholds for risk, for example? And how do they educate themselves, not just on the specifics of that business, but say on the industry in which it operates? You know, uh, engaging with peers in even competitors on you know, uh, issues that are, you know, not anti-competitive, but that are, say, benefiting the community or benefiting society. Those are ways to build connections and build knowledge about the industry and opportunities there that the lawyer can then bring back into the business and, and bring a perspective that the business people might not have. And that will allow them to create opportunities and see uh, you know, for example, market volatility or other uh, 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 other industry conditions that are truly value adding for the business. And so we give lots of very concrete actions that in-house lawyers can take in order to get that seat at the strategy table, not just ask for it. Brilliant. And I'm wondering, collaboration, obviously, um, what we what we've been talking about is how effectively wonderful it is, but I know it brings some challenges. And there's really two I would like to touch on. So one is the idea of collaboration overload. And the second one is I'm wondering if you could speak to when does collaboration become mission creep? Well, collaboration overload is a really critical risk for collaboration. In fact, when we conducted uh, all these surveys of these hundreds of in-house legal team members, we found that the biggest barrier for them unlike for lawyers in a firm, is time pressure. They are simply squeezed and overburdened with business as usual. And for them to carve out even the mental space to think strategically and to develop the kinds of relationships with their functional counterparts, you know, head of HR, head of IT, head of cyber and so forth, you know, that takes time and it takes a real investment. And if they if they're crushed by the day-to-day, finding the opportunity to do that is really rare. So time pressure is a huge barrier for in-house lawyers. Now, what we know is that um, for them to be able to create the space for true smart collaboration, they have to make sure that they are engaged in the kinds of initiatives where their legal expertise is going to be best used. So, you know, one small piece that we write about in our book is making sure that the day-to-day is handled as efficiently as possible. There are loads of thinkers around the world now working on legal operations and making business um, much more efficient and optimizing processes within the legal team. That's actually an enabler of collaboration. You know, connecting those dots is is important, I think, for listeners, because those um, initiatives to make process more efficient, to standardize ways of working, to take some of the mundane routine work off the plate of lawyers who could otherwise be adding a lot of value, that's essential in order to free those people's time and attention up so that they can focus on these higher value pieces of work. 
The other thing that we need to think about is that for lawyers to become more strategic thinkers, they've got to immerse themselves in the business realities. They've got to find the time, whether it's inside or outside of work, to become genuinely curious about how that business is operating. They need to be uh, comfortable asking what may appear to be somewhat naive questions. Um, They need to be carving out time to do site visits. So I had a, a GC Uh, that we interviewed for our book talking about, you know, if he goes anywhere in his company, um, you know, around the world um, on business, he makes sure to visit a local plant and, you know, visit some of the the aspects of the supply chain locally so that he has a much better handle on what some of those risks are, what the realities on the ground, you know, for people who are, uh, you know, trying to operate the company. And he said, you know, it's come back to benefit him in innumerable ways that were hard to predict in advance. And that's why he considers it an investment. He knows the return is going to be high, but he had to carve out the time early to immerse himself in the business and make those connections, develop the relationships, understand the business at a granular level so that later on he was able to add value when it mattered the most. For lawyers to have the the time to engage in these value-adding activities, they have to make sure they're not overloaded. And throwing a lawyer on every team is clearly not going to be an answer to how they add the most value. So stepping back and evaluating strategically how they are supposed to add value and when is the right time for them to get engaged is super important. They've got to be very deliberate about uh, about where they spend their time. There's also you know, a host of actions that lawyers can take if they are what we call multi-teamed, which is virtually every lawyer in the in-house arena. You know, multi-teamed means they are simultaneously engaging on multiple projects or initiatives at once. And uh, a colleague Mark Mortensen of uh, INSEAD Business School in France, he and I wrote an article which became a a cover story for Harvard Business Review and has now been included in several of their best of collections called the Overcommitted Organization. And we can make that link available to your readers. It gives a lot of advice for people who are leading teams where people are stretched thin. For example, you know, we've come up with the four M's. They need to measure, map, manage and motivate people. Um, and, and let me just touch on uh, the first couple of those, measuring it. Most leaders of organizations, most GCs, for example, won't know how overstretched or overcommitted their lawyers are because those, you know, that work allocation tends to happen a lot bottom up. And so there's um, oftentimes in the firms we've studied or the, the, the um, teams that we've studied, there's a real overload where some people are incredibly overburdened, where other people have a far less heavy workload. And leaders often don't see that because those uh, the work allocation happens sort of organically and bottom up. And the, uh, the research we've done and, and colleagues of ours uh, you know, throughout academia have done show that 
you know, these uh, overburdened individuals often bear a hugely disproportionate share of the work. So leaders need to measure that. Um, and whether that's formally, you know, and quantitatively, or whether it's just keeping a finger on who's doing what and who's pulled and stretched thin is essential for knowing where there are spots in the team that either need to be uh, backstopped and and provided more resource or where you can reallocate some work. So that's the first piece around measuring. Mapping means that we understand where there are capabilities in the team. And on a given initiative, for example, where do we have overlapping expertise such that if there's a shock in one part of the organization right now, you know, I'm talking to you in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, lots of people have been pulled off to handle, you know, specific issues around that. It means that they are neglecting the roles that they need to play in other mission critical aspects of the corporation. Teams that understand where they've got Uh, redundant expertise initially are able to pull on those experts even when their team starts to get frayed by a crisis like this. And so that's the mapping piece, knowing before a crisis hits, who's on the team, the roles that they can play, and the boundaries of their expertise. So you realize if if certain critical people get pulled off, how are you going to, to keep the initiative on track? And and that's the mapping expert. And a lot of people do a sort of mental accounting of that at some point, but we're asking people to think about doing it much more formally and proactively. And so that was was measure, map, motivate, and what was the missing one? So manage and motivate. Manage. So how do you manage a team if everyone is is stretched thin? Um, we've got lots of suggestions for you know concrete actions that leaders can can take to make sure that. They are not just allocating work, but um, staying on top of the work that they are pulling in the right kinds of resources, some of whom are, you know, less obvious than others, uh, but can play a critical role and bring a a different voice to to the dialogue and to, to the project. And motivating means that we have lots of subject matter experts. You know, the in-house lawyer is a classic example of an expert who is pulled in for just a very specific piece of a project, but it's not very motivating for them because they're often not privy to a big picture perspective on how their expertise is really helping the bigger picture of that project move forward. Um, Or another way to think about it is the in-house lawyer is often the one who's touching lots and lots of pieces of the organization. And they have an opportunity to motivate others in the business by making some of those connections more obvious. You know, people who are working on two seemingly isolated teams may not know about each other, except the in-house lawyer can make that introduction and help them share some best practices across functional or organizational silos that might not otherwise happen. So the in-house lawyer needs on the one hand to pay attention to themselves being stretched thin and keeping up their motivation and getting access to the right kinds of knowledge that will help them connect to the broader picture of any given project that they're working on. And they can play a critical role in motivating others by helping to make those connections. Heidi, as you've explained all these uh, brilliant points of research, I can't help but think that the COVID-19 pandemic, which is currently unfolding, really accentuates a lot of these problems that you've been so focused on. It definitely accentuates the problems of how to manage a remote 
workforce, which we talked about in an earlier episode, but it definitely also accentuates the idea of uh, collaborating. How do you do it effectively? And how do you really uh, manage an over overcommitted organization? Um, I'm wondering before we wrap up, if we could just zoom out for a second and we find ourselves in a, in a relatively turbulent world and people are going to be pulled every which way. If you're an in-house lawyer and you're assessing how to get the job done in this new environment, what are some of your, what's your one key tip, I suppose, for, for, for a person who finds themselves in, in this situation? Whether we're working remotely or face-to-face, Trust is foundational to collaboration. And there are two kinds of trust we uncovered in our research. One is interpersonal trust. That means I need to believe that your intentions are good, that you are a great person to work with, that you aren't going to steal credit or undermine my other relationships or, you know, in the in-house legal world, it, it's often tough to get uh, the recognition for the work that goes on behind the scenes. And so I have to trust that the people I'm working with are going to contribute to my own professional success and vice versa. So that's the one kind of trust is this interpersonal sort of character trust in other people. The second kind of trust is competence trust. Surely I'm not going to bring anyone on to an important project unless I believe 100% that they're going to deliver high quality, on time, within budget, and so forth. And germane to this idea of working remotely, I think we should recognize that it puts a strain on our ability to develop and maintain both those kinds of trust. So clearly when we are fragmented, you know, we're this the atomized workforce right now where everyone is in their own little bubble, how do we create the sense of interpersonal trust? Well, we need to become much more proactive in reaching out and developing those relationships, nurturing those relationships, and importantly, suspending, actively suspending our sense of skepticism or suspicion or skepticism about other people. In other words, you know, if we've had a hunch that so-and-so might not be the hardest worker, we've got to put that aside. And when they're working from home, we've got to assume that they have the very best of intentions and that they're going to be all in. And so trust first, unless proven otherwise. You know, we've got to, to de- also demonstrate to others that we are trustworthy and that, you know, uh, establish itself through um, caring actions, through being proactive, through making sure people know that we've got their back. The competence trust piece is really essential here as well. I would urge people to use rich media uh, forms. In other words, you know, not just to be dashing off emails because we can sort of misspeak in an email. It's easy to not have a complete, uh, you know, uh, it's easy when using email or these other uh, forms of communication where we are incredibly time pressured, not to get the whole point across and to come across as, as not as fully competent or as um, on top of things as we should otherwise be. And I'd urge people to perhaps use the 
very quick email, 100 words or less with bullet points to get some main topic points across with an explicit recognition that a follow-up call is warranted, and then get into the richness of the conversation, the nuance, uh, and so forth uh, in in a phone call or ideally in a video conference. There are ways that we need to keep the trust strong and even strengthen it while we're remote working. And those are the issues I would ask people to keep in mind, even in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. Heidi, thank you so much. You've given our listeners uh, so much to think about. I'm going to be adding links to all the research that you've mentioned in the show notes. Um, Remind listeners again, you have some research coming out in April. Is that the smart collaboration for in-house legal teams? Absolutely. So that's a book that's going to be published by Globe Business and Law Publishing in the UK. And we hope it will be available on online retailers uh, sometime uh, by the end of April, early May. Well, it just leaves me on behalf of others to say thank you so much for your time, particularly in this time of crisis where your skills are no doubt in demand. Um, we really appreciate your time. So, so thanks so much for joining us and sharing your, your wisdom and your research. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.